Hello, everybody. Welcome in. Happy Friday. It's 11 o'clock. It uh, <laughs> looks like we might have a surprise guest here. Ooh, we have Hans, we have Noah, and we have Jason. Who could Jason be? Who could? <gasps> oh, my God. Ah. <laughs> I am so scared. Welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you can hear us okay in the comments. Make sure you can see us okay in the comments. Let us know where you're from, where you're tuning in from. We always have an amazingly international audience. Thank you so much for um, supporting the channel. This last week has been very busy, very, very busy. A lot of stuff to talk about. But let's just go around the panel and see how everybody's feeling. Let's start with Jason, because Jason, obviously, you know, he's had a um, very special guest today. How are you doing, Jason? How's everything? Uh, I am very, very good today. I think, by the way, just to get it out of the way, I would be the perfect successor to Elon at Tesla. I would be the, or I could be the CEO forever, number one. And nice. number two, I will aggressively protect the rights of Tesla and Tesla shareholders. <laughs> you know, Jason, when, when I saw you in those awesome movies you took part in, that's literally the first thought that came to mind. I'm like, man, this guy would be the perfect Tesla CEO. My goodness. Noah, long time you haven't been on the community forums. Thank you so much, man, for coming back. How, how you been? How's everything happy going? Happy to be back. No, things are going great. I'm, I'm super happy, super stoked about both major events this week with Neuralink and then obviously the semi-delivery. So um, yeah, thou a thousand volt architecture is the highlight for me. Like I'm a Cybertruck reservation holder, you know, so I'm excited mm. about that and want to hear uh, the panelists thoughts about that. And then I'm also curious to see if we got any sort of um, you know, underground numbers as far as the, the delivery numbers to Pepsi, because they didn't announce that, I don't think, officially. So we'll see. We'll see where the conversation goes. Awesome, man. Yeah. And then Hans, you're you're on these every week, bro. And we love having uh, you on yeah. these because you had such good insight. How you doing? <laughs> I love being here. Yeah, it's been a crazy week. Excited to get down and talk about Tesla with y'all today. Heck yeah. And I think that's the perfect segue for me. So like, how nice did it feel to not necessarily talk much about Twitter or Elon or some of that stuff that obviously is front of center and we, you know, we can't ignore, we have to address and talk through it. But how did it feel to finally have a week in what seemed like a really long time where the sort of call it the community or the sort of cultural sphere of of what people are paying attention to to elon was centered around the technology and was centered around the engineering how what how do you guys think about that because that to me was the biggest standout for this week um what do you guys think who wants to take that first nobody i just think like, right, no <laughs> yeah I, I completely agree there's all these distractions and for me it's like i feel like um we're almost like trying to keep our head down and people are throwing rocks at us or something, you know, in the sense of like all the distractions and all the smack talking that happens with, with Elon and everything else. And it's like, just shut up, keep moving forward. And then something like this is just like putting points on the board, you know, like just amazing wins. Uh, and then, and then also like to have something that has been delayed so long and if people just speculating like, Oh, it's not a real thing. Like this is just proof in the pudding of it's all coming together. So. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. It's, it's, um, got on. Yeah, I was just going to say that I completely agree, uh, especially because it, the semi has been so long in coming. We've known that it was just delayed because of the supply of batteries. And so it 
you know, it says really good things about where Tesla's at in their product roadmap for them to begin deliveries now, and then excited to see it. Um, also, I'm really excited to see as they're delivered, I'm sure we'll get a lot more updates on technical specs that they didn't really share with us in the presentation. And uh, I'm sure there will also be some fleet operators or people making the case to fleet operators publicly that are sharing, you know, hey, what are the economics of operating a fleet of Tesla semis? And that's going to be really exciting to watch for. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the first YouTube channel that pops up with uh, either a fleet operator or a driver that's like using Tesla semi and they're using like real world. Like it's, it's a perfect uh, tool for a content creator to have a Tesla semi right now. And I think through that outlet, we might get a lot of information, you know? Yep. Where are you at, Xander? Yeah, Where's I was. Xander? Where is he? I, oh. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> Go Xander is the retail shareholder who ordered a semi. He's on the Cyber Bulls episodes oh, that okay, Tessa okay. Herbert does, and so yeah, he's got a he's got one on order. When he gets it, then we'll we'll get the content. Gotcha, gotcha. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, so I, I I thought it gave me a breather. It kind of reminded me of the uh, last presidential election and kind of just hoping that things would be calm. I really didn't care what happened, honestly. I just wanted things to be calm. And that event last night kind of, that would remind, reminded me of that, kind of brought it down. And uh, the, what occurred to me also is um, I would like to have those events in the morning. Why not let it ride during the stock day as opposed to after stock hours? Because uh, on the West Coast, when you start at five o'clock, the market's closed, closed. Post, mm -hmm. After market's closed too. I'd like to see it done at nine o'clock in the morning, West Coast time, and let it let the market react to the to the uh, whatever they see. And then the other thing I was thinking about, reason why maybe the because I thought it was, you know, I loved it, but I thought it was somewhat amateurish the event itself, which was fine by the way. But I wondered maybe perhaps the reason why there wasn't uh, a bunch of information disclosed is perhaps there's NB NDAs signed between Pepsi and uh, Tesla. And maybe Tesla, because they want to get out these products, have a special arrangement with the first deliveries to Pepsi. And maybe they're below market and maybe they don't want to disclose that information. So mm. maybe that's why the they kind of talked about technical details somewhat, but not really the specifics of the numbers, the deliveries, the pricing, et cetera. Um, that's, that's what occurred to me. Yeah, I think it would make sense to deliver the MVP minimal viable product in the sense of like, if they delivered all 100 that were on pre-order, then the quality control might not be as good. And then they have a lot of different things that could go wrong across the board. Whereas if you only deliver a couple of those, um, they could basically be those alpha tests of the whole production and then um you know basically um i think it's a i hate to say it's a, a bill gates quote but um when you scale production you magnify its weaknesses or its flaws right and so the same thing would essentially happen if you delivered all of them you would have um you know issues across 100 models where if you delivered say three or four or five then you only have a, a small handful of things that you can correct for those other 95 um, that you deliver so um yeah i'm, I'm curious to see it I, I bet you it's only a handful that they actually delivered but it I, to me it makes the most sense that it's a low number and then on pricing specifically, there was a comment that I saw on Twitter that for these early ones where 
a fleet operator is also going to have to incorporate some significant mega charger build out to support their fleet, then the pricing is not really just the truck. Like there's a lot more that goes into all that and it could all be rolled into a single contract price too. So uh, there may not be a whole lot of clarity on the exact price of the semi itself in all of that. Yeah. I also I also found what was well, at least it occurred to me that what I was most fascinated by, to be honest, was the Tesla's use internally of the product. You know that uh, Sparks to Fremont uh, route that they talked about. I thought that's really fascinating because um, we have two kind of different avenues. One is obviously you want it to be profitable outside, but internally you could dramatically cut costs and increase margins that way and it's kind of like a out of thin air because it doesn't you know it's it's not it's in essence creating another robot in a, in a way uh, as a truck and using that to lower your supply costs transportation costs etc on the the other thing that occurred to me was and i looked this i looked this up afterwards um it, to run a truck I, per year like a, a single truck owner operator it's going to cost approximately $200,000 a year. And of that amount, depending on fuel costs, it varied. And like in 2021, fuel costs ran about 23% of the total costs. And in 2022, they ran about 38% of the total costs, obviously reflecting increase in uh, fuel costs. Maintenance was about 10%. Insurance, which I think nobody's discussed, was 6%. Um, and I was just thinking all those items uh, fuel costs obviously would be dramatically uh, re reduced. The maintenance costs would be dramatically reduced. Tesla insurance riding the trucks would dramatically in reduce insurance costs. And so I, I saw some quote from Elon where he thought per mile he could get it down to a buck 25 per mile. Um, and when they're figuring out the total calculation of the price, it's running about 120,000 miles a year, 100,000 miles where they're loaded and about 20,000 where they're not, when they're coming back from routes. And the estimate is about two bucks. It's costing them about two bucks a mile to do that. And Elon's talking about a buck and a quarter. So we were talking about pricing, how you price it. I mean, if I'm Pepsi and I could save, you know, 30% uh, on transportation, that's gonna be a huge number. And that's going to be reflected in the ultimate sales price. Notwithstanding the fact internally, you're going to have a number much below that. You don't have to, you know, theoretically, you're ultimately going to run these as FSD with no drive. I mean, that's the way I see it. FSD, no drivers. That saves you about another 25% in cost. That's going to be a dramatic profit and margin upgrade. So that's kind of what occurred to me. Yeah. It also makes me think about like, if they're too cheap or inexpensive, they're losing out on revenue and profits, right? But if they're too expensive, then they might be losing out on market, you know, and getting conversion, um, even though Tesla has a huge brand and there's already a lot of movement towards that. So I think they have to find that sweet spot between the two. And then obviously because the event was what, five years ago when it was announced, the pricing today obviously has changed, even though it's not a publicly stated thing. And what you just outlined, Jason, is awesome. <laughs> I'm going to definitely rewatch those numbers because those are really good insights. Yeah, I can tell you the other part of this too, the, the internal use of this technology of, of the semi is 
it, it could even go further than that than just a pure savings play from transportation costs. So how do I think of what do I think of a semi? R- really, what it is? It's a mobile warehouse, right? It's a uh, it's a thing that's pulling a trailer that uh, is I don't know x number of square feet with some you know nine feet or eight feet of clearance high. But it's basically a subs a subset of a warehouse or a subset of a space that's going to utilize that product eventually. What's stopping Tesla from utilizing the semi internally to essentially propagate their uh, all the parts, all the supply, everything they could use for production, service, or whatever? And then it's, instead of um, making these warehouses all over the place or these factories or or things where they have to like you know, secure product and move it from one place to another, you now have a network essentially on the entire on the entire globe that you have literally just in time inventory everywhere. And you own that entire process. That for me is the most exciting thing about uh, using the semi internally, because now, now you're positioning yourself in a place where you can be probably you can probably double or triple your total uh, square footage capacity by the number of semis you have on the road for internal use, and you'll have those things where they need to be at all times. And so fleet management becomes a a very big variable to ensure that gets done. But from a physics standpoint, literally there's nothing stopping you from doing that. And so the the implications of that are completely nuts because the the biggest bottleneck when it comes to production or service or anything, it's always supply chain. It's always like, can we get the supply where it needs to be? If you have mobile warehouses freaking everywhere driving themselves, you've just solved a, a giant uh, bottleneck for your for your processes. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, reminds me of something that I was thinking about last night while we were on the stream. Also potentially could revolutionize their mobile service that if you have a platform that's that large that you can transport all your parts in that you could basically drive around and do things that you would actually have to go to a service center in currently, you could actually do those on a semi in a a workshop that's in the trailer. Um, I don't know if that would work. You know, we were talking about the difficulty of servicing semi itself uh, it would be really interesting to see if they could ever do that where they could have mobile semi-service. Um, I don't know if that'd be possible or not, but it'll be curious to see how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, looks like producer wife just pulled up a uh, a video from the Tesla account. Elon Musk just retweeted this, I guess. Uh, and it's the Tesla semi driving 500 miles fully loaded on a single charge. Uh, this yeah. was a snippet. Yeah. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, so uh, just so we understand geography, and I think Noah would understand it too, since we're both uh, probably within 45 miles of each other. When you're going from Northern California to Southern California, which was that 500 mile route, when you're driving through the San Joaquin Valley, which is pretty flat, when you, when you that's going from North to South. At the base, when you, at the end of the San Joaquin Valley, you go to the, there's a grade. Um, and you have to climb that grade. And that grade is pretty steep. So, and it probably goes to an elevation of approximately 4,000 feet. And then you kind of come back down and the you know you eventually level off and you go south. But that's quite a pull for a truck. I mean, I've driven that and it's a pull for a car. So uh, I was very impressed with that particular route because I did not think that was like a gimme route. You know, they, I, I, they obviously could have 
found some route downhill. You could have done it in the cola if you wanted to do that. But I thought that was a real challenging route. So I was impressed by that 500 miles. Yeah, yeah I think, I think they, um, just opening up a can of worms here, think, rethinking about like essentially how space in general can be reused, like so far as Zod's point about warehousing and like having um, stuff brought, you know, opening your square footage and having that mobility to, to bring um, your warehouse or your workshop to somebody or auto repair, like Hans just said, there's retail space, there's event space, which I'm in, you know, like, so there's just a whole set of businesses that could probably stack on top of this technology that I, I don't think has been discussed yet. So that's exciting. Yeah, 100% agreed. The go ahead, Hans. Especially if yeah, it is autonomous. Like if you can tell your truck, hey, go, you know, set up here and then go set up there and then go set up there. I mean that it definitely is gonna be just like the app store created a whole new set of business model opportunities on top of the iPhone platform something like this can actually do the same thing for physical real world business models. Yep. And, and you're talking about also that you have these little mini power plants scattered throughout the world. And, you know, they could service anything that requires power. Yep. It's very true. There's, there's so many different use cases. I mean, we've, we've heard people about turning them into mobile RVs, you know, like, now you have this, uh, you need a class eight license to pull it, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's an application. So, um, I do think for the, for the first, we had, a we had Corey from Monroe light again. Thank you. If you're watching this, Corey, thank you so much for making the time to come on. That was a treat. That was really a treat to have somebody of his expertise come on and sort of share his thoughts. The, um, one thing that I took away from his take was that the current version of the semi-truck is not necessarily a replacement for those long-haul overnight uh, trucks, right? There he is, Corey. Thank you again. Make sure you go follow him on Twitter. Producer wife is just getting so good at this, man. What a beast. Uh, Corey Steuben, a president of Monroe and Associates, basically Sandy and Corey are the uh, masterminds behind Monroe. And the... What I'm trying to figure out, and I don't know if this is something producer wife can find out in the background while we're talking about this, is what percent of total truck traffic, like you think about mo movement of goods, is tied to that long haul overnight sort of uh, use case where you need a bed and you need, I don't know, a thousand miles of range or, or something to that extent to make it happen versus every other uh, semi-traffic, let's say in the United States, right? Because if that long haul solution is 20% or even 40%, then the semi still has a, a, a giant market that it can capitalize on in the say medium to even long-ish term, because it's going to take a really long time to quote unquote, replace that, that um, transportation segment. But then by that, by the time they've penetrated that market, they very well could also be in, in tandem, be working on a solution that's going to be for a very long haul sort of trip. Or the, the, the opposite side of it could be because it's so cheap to operate and because it really, if you think about it, if a lot of the parts that uh, are used to build a semi is not that expensive, 
what's stopping you from essentially creating uh this making the supply chain tailored to the tesla semi so you don't need long-haul trucks right so you just have drop-off points where the brand new charged semi can just take it boom 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 especially with full self-driving the use case of a long-haul truck becomes obsolete right does that make sense yeah and then to take that one step further uh, i forgot who said it last night but the imagine all the train tracks being converted to semi-truck you know roadways essentially if that's more efficient and that's better overall you know like that that's a huge infrastructure question to farzad's point of like what if we rethink the fundamentals of transportation and how that works and how you know the current structure is based off of diesel trucks driving on highways but what does that look like um you know if boring company or you know um the trains are tr the tracks are converted over so lots of op opportunities for sure yeah what, what struck me when i heard it and i heard that comment i thought he was great by the way and that was really uh interesting when he came on uh, one was when they said you could stand up in the truck, fully stand up. I thought that was impressive. But when he made that comment, when I was I was listening to that comment when he talked about the long haul trucks, and I thought, wow, with Tesla's amazing technology, could they figure out a way to make a bed? Mm. I, I didn't think that was like yeah. A it's great not necessarily trip. the bed that is the problem there uh it's just the ability of the truck really to have that type of range so if they're gonna make a sleeper cab truck they need one that instead of having 500 miles of range it needs to have more like 750 or a thousand um and so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to create a sleeper cab that doesn't have the range that they normally get in those in those semis well, my question, my question is, if it's a union job, don't they have to stop anyway? So isn't it a question of just charging? So if you provide the charging network, I would think if you can only drive 10 hours, whatever you can drive, and then you have to take a break because it's required by law and you could charge and, you, and there's a bed, I, I don't see the issue. I, I think it's a charging issue, not a, not a bed issue. And also, I think it's also, it's a cultural issue too. I think there are truckers who like that lifestyle. They like to sleep in their truck, like to be on free spirits and traveling around. And it's not necessarily a business requirement. It's more of a lifestyle lifestyle choice. And I think Tesla could accommodate that. That's my feeling. Yeah. But I think again, in the in the like medium to long term, this is where it gets super hairy and like super weird. Because if you have full self-driving semis, why do you need to cater to the driver? Right. This is where in my head, I'm like, OK, this this is where I get this is where my concerns start to rise up around this technology. <laughs> you know, if within three years, Tesla has figured out full self-driving and they can set it up again so that you have this handoff process where the semi, you know, drops off a container at a look at a predetermined location after 500 miles, then a, a, a fully charged semi picks that sucker up, drives it another 500 miles and you just chain that up for the whole country you know boom you've you don't need anything else and then the form factor of the semi changes completely so that you know it, my uh buddy that used to work at tesla him and i worked together he was like why even have a semi just make trailers that drive themselves at that point why do you need the the pull just make the trailer itself drive itself like that makes sense right make the floor of the 
of the of the trailer all batteries and then make the front of the trailer more aerodynamic and then that becomes your solution you don't even have to worry about the driver so the longer term implications are, are so strange uh can you pull up that comment again producer wife real quick uh what about no passenger seat long hauls get two drivers sometimes one drives once one sleeps yeah that's that's the current solution for sure that those tandem trucks um you have two drivers so that you can pull the, the trailer at all times um there is a yeah. second seat in the semi it's just not side by side it's kind of back behind the corner yeah yeah and so so farzad's point too if if you're rethinking the the cab itself and how's that how that's designed um why not make that cab a control room for multiple um semi trucks right so you can basically have connectivity so if you're driving or in the in the cockpit um you could also be parking you know say you're in charge of 10 or 20 different fleet trucks and so now that you're in an autonomous vehicle you're traveling with it you can also connect and do the the last you know five percent of the trip or three percent of the trip that may not be um capable at least in the short term of you know full self-driving like those hard specific parking maneuvers or whatever it could be i mean parking maneuvers might be the easier part of it i don't know um but then also to extend the thought of like redesigning the cab, like we said, for sleeping or for extra people, redesigning the trailer itself. I think if I heard correctly, they're like between 12 and 17,000 pounds. Um, so maybe that could be redesigned to be lighter, you know, lots, lots of opportunities again. Yeah. And uh, I was going to say from a, I'm sorry. No, please. But I was going to say from a cultural standpoint, you just can't do it fast. You, you can only impose on what you control. So Tesla could do whatever they want internally, right? We could run empty trucks, we could try everything we want internally, but you can't impose it culturally on Pepsi. Um, yeah. And the way the way you know, we could see it takes a long time to change attitude. And if you go full bore at at right from the stop, that you're going to encounter huge resistance. So I think you got to kind of gradually change, you know, you got to you got to show how it's valuable. And then you got to introduce people slowly and eventually you're going to reach the point where everybody gets it and then you can you can then move much faster but to advance like we would like things to advance it's just going to piss off people and get pushed back and probably ultimately slow down what we want to accomplish yeah it's that s curve versus like a jump right Every, some people um argue that about the grid and having electric cars in the grid, like the argument, the um, illogical argument was around like, well, what if every, everything was electric today, the grid wouldn't support it. It's like, it's an S curve. It's not a jump curve. Like you're not jumping to everything being electric mm -hmm. all of a sudden. So you're the, you know, specific circumstance you're bringing up is irrelevant because that's not physically possible. But to your point, like it's going to slowly take uh, adoption over time. In the short term, they're going to be catering to those drivers, but over time, it's going to be less and less. And frankly, um, I know lots of truck drivers, they're, it's not a healthy lifestyle. It's, it's not good on the body to, to work those kind of hours and to travel the way they do. I think the life expectancy, correct me if I'm wrong, I think is like it, the 50s or 60s. Like it's, it's not a great life for the truck drivers. It's a hard life. Yeah, and it was curious that Tesla specifically kind of geared the event last night towards making the truck feel appealing to drivers specifically. So, you know, I don't know 
different people are going to interpret that different ways, but it seems like for for the near term that Tesla is definitely keeping drivers front and center in their thought process. Oh, man, it might yeah. be fun. So, sorry. sorry, let me just read this real quick. I'm sorry. So that we were talking about life expectancy for truck drivers. This is from uh, this is the CDC, um, I guess. Uh, as you said previously, the average life expectancy of truck drivers in the United States is 61 years old. This is less than average and generally comes as a result of a combination of factors that are related to the environment of the road, but also the lifestyle that comes with trucking life. I mean, you're sitting most of the time, obviously, and um, you probably can't find really good, um, you know, food and routes to wherever you're going. I'm sure, you know, th those truck stops, I don't see, you know, when we're used to drive to the country from time to time you're not finding the healthiest choices, right? Um, but it's still a very fascinating, I have more thoughts about it, but go ahead. No, I, I really oh yeah, no, it's all good. I'm, I mean, I would love to see an option for a stand sit type desk in the semi truck. I know that's probably never really been done before, but we're rethinking things here. I think that from a health perspective might be a huge opportunity um, because the truck is electric. Um, there could be a fridge with more healthy food, opportunities you know when you're on the road there's a lot of junk food you're not eating you know healthy greens and smoothies all the time you're you're eating junk food you know on the road so there's there's definitely a lot of health opportunities there for drivers the the tesla mobile semi gym that's a new product <laughs> but the way i think about that though is like if if the driver has the ability to say stay healthy while quote unquote so I, I, let me let me rephrase it are you envisioning these types of solutions to be done while driving or while they're while they're resting like how because the, the while driving part renders the driver obsolete in my head because so i'm like if you can offer a sure. solution where they can keep healthy while they're driving like okay so they're not really driving you're just creating a space for somebody to just it's like you're gamifying the experience you're not you're not is not really necessary to have the driver there so how, how are you thinking about that yeah i kind of see two major categories it's the rv community where the, it's more of a leisure drive so um they're more about the destination rather than getting paid to, to go there and then there's the commercial side of it right um where you do have the truck driving industry as a whole um and that's more about um obviously getting the job done and i, I still feel like at least over time um the percentage of tasks that a self-driving vehicle can do is obviously pretty high right now and then over time that's going to diminish but you know there's still going to be that uh extenuating circumstance that little short small percentage that needs to be taken care of but to address your uh, current point about like is are those functions the gym or sleeping or what have you are those active things when you're driving versus like uh, available things uh, when you're parking uh, if you look at um like we, we've talked about before um i think it's eight hours you need a 30 minute rest and um, after 10 or 11 hours of driving, you need, you know, a 10 hour break. So it's more about the the off times that those, the gym and those other features would be available. And then specifically when you're driving, um, it's the sand sit thing might help with a health, you know, health concerns as well. And maybe there's other ways uh, health science folks can jump in to help us with this uh, ideas around this, but like to try to offset this, the, you know, 10 hours of sitting and the health effects of that, you know, there are the, decline from health from from doing those kind of things but it's just something yeah. i feel like people haven't talked about before and and it's really cool to, to dive into that yeah i was going to say ultimately from the big from the big picture we 
Tesla has an opportunity here because ultimately we have to get rid of truck drivers and all and all those kind of tasks that can be replaced. And but those people have to find alternative jobs or alternative sources of income. And I know Tesla at one point in time or Elon was talking about building a, a university uh, uh, in Texas or there was talk about it, a, a tech industry. But why not instead of that, in terms of industries that they are that they're in effect, the goal is to get rid of the employees. Why not establish training programs for it prospectively? So so for now, so we'll give truckers a break. We'll hire, we'll, we'll train truckers to do alternative careers and do this over time and start a program where we're basically helping people switch. And not only will it be productive, but it'll give good PR to, to Tesla. And ultimately that's gonna be the issue. We're gonna have to get people to switch. So why not be part of the solution? Uh, if we're gonna promote it, why not be part of the solution too? Yeah. That's that's yep. a that's a very fair point. Go ahead, Hans. This is a specific topic that Andrew Yang kind of built his platform on, and truckers are are the group that he sees probably being disrupted next. And he and Elon have discussed this at length together. It it is a great question, but the one pushback that I have on this, and I, I raised this last night in the stream, I think there's a very real possibility that uh, we will end up going to a platoon model instead of just fully autonomous. And so there will be a driver that's assigned to a group of trucks. And if we do get to the point where the cost of transporting freight by trucking platoon is lower than the cost of transporting freight by rail, the demand for overland truck just basically skyrockets to the point where even if you have, say, two drivers for 10 trucks, that you still have a demand for drivers that is equal to or greater than the demand for drivers today. Um, and we still get, so it's almost like a, you know, you get your cake and you get to eat it too. Then we're the people that are disrupted are the, uh, the train engineers and all the railroad people, uh, which is a much smaller workforce, but it is a very, um, it's a very critical piece of infrastructure today. So I don't know. That's my, the thing that I keep wondering about is if you, know, we keep thinking about these things as wholesale disruptions that will completely eliminate things. And I wonder if the business opportunities that are being opened up basically make the technology additive and not necessarily subtractive. Yeah, that's a whole new industry that could be sprouted out of this is like caravan rail, obviously caravan on the highways as well. But um, if, I'll reference an old Mythbusters episode where they did uh, aerodynamics of like trailing an 18 wheeler. Um, and essentially they increased their efficiency. I think it was like close to 30% or something, um, the closer and closer it got. But obviously um, there was a, um, a, a fall off essentially the you know because of safety they, they couldn't get so close but with self-driving imagine having a fleet of 30 40 50 semi trucks on the rail system like obviously replacing that um, and then not only that you know uh, you can travel that distance 
they could literally drive off the tracks onto the road to do that last mile delivery. Like, so you could be uh, eliminating lots of processes, lots of steps. Um, there's rail yards there that essentially don't need to be there anymore. The unloading and loading of those big, um, you know, storage containers don't need to be there. Like, so there's, there's a lot of things there that could be changed as well. And if, if in fact Tesla bot is an effect FSD, because I guess the setup is the same, and what do you need a person? Why can't you just have Tesla bot drive if it's, if it's FSD and Tesla bot is that, then I think you really have, you can eliminate a lot of those individual jobs. Yeah. Especially for unloading and loading, like you can have the Tesla bot do that, that last three or 5% of those tasks that a physical driver may be there for. The, I think it'll come down to a matter of liability there though. Still. I mean, do you want te the bot to be responsible for this 80,000 pound missile hurtling down the road at 75, 80 miles an hour and all of the negative consequences that potentially arise from that. So, and especially then if you have a train of those things, um, I, I'm not so sure that we'll get to the point where that is just completely autonomous. Um, unless Tesla's really, I mean, it's definitely a step change in functionality of FSD. It's one thing to keep a car from crashing into anything ever using the occupancy networks and all of the technology that Ashok's been working on. Um, that's one order of magnitude of a challenge for a car. It's definitely another order of magnitude for a semi. And then even beyond that for a platoon of semis. Yeah. And what I was going to say is that um, if we look back 20 years ago, things are quite different. And I'm sure 20 years from now, when maybe this will be a relevant discussion, because I don't think it's going to happen you know, immediately, I think the world is going to be such a different place that we, we can't comprehend what it's going to be like. And so things that, uh, that today sound crazy um, are going to be standard. And, it w and our view will be different. We'll have a different view of the future that will think of things that we can't believe. But those will occur, too. So uh, um, anyway. For sure. I kind of had a curious question for the panel about do we feel like semi-trucks will grow faster as a percentage because it's a commercial application or the adoption of cars will grow faster um, because it's already got more momentum? As a percentage? I mean, I think that's an interesting question. It all depends. Like the way I think about it is what is the production capability of Tesla versus uh, like in those two areas and other manufacturers. Uh, Tesla is really the only one that's building a tr pure electric semi from the sounds of it. Every other, say, new wave of manufacturers for that industry are mostly hydrogen focused, right? In some sort of alternative. So it, I think the question is to be fr framed around what is the ultimate type of solution you're trying to push forward? And if we're saying just electric, then for the, for the near term, the semi is going to grow way faster from a percentage basis because it's going from zero to one. And that's uh, what an infinite growth. <laughs> so just from that perspective, it's going to be a, um, 
the semi is going to take it. Now, over time, the interesting thing is what's going to become a more valuable thing for society, the transportation of goods or the transportation of people. Uh, those two sound really important, <laughs> very, very important. But if we're going more to a uh, digitized world where the transfer of goods, like you getting the product come to you is better than you going to the product, then the transportation of goods probably will be a bigger market than the transportation of people. Uh, if that's, If it gets to the point where the cost of doing that becomes so cheap and like we're thinking about i'm thinking about it through the lens of the united states right but this is a global phenomenon and that's one thing we can't sort of forget is like this could be applied anywhere so all the you know half of the world four billion people right now don't don't even comprehend what the hell is going on in 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 a lot of these developed nations with the technology because they don't have exposure to it it's not lack of intelligence or anything they just don't see it but if the cost of running a solution like this becomes so, so cheap, it's just a question of building out the infrastructure. And if building out the infrastructure means that that population all of a sudden takes a ton of benefits from having that technology, then the transfer of goods becomes a gigantic, ballooning, super fast industry. So that's how I think about it. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts, but... Yeah. yeah, I mean, to shout out Jordan Gisicki, the, the limiting factor on this is definitely still going to be battery supply, though. And, 100%. you know, we've got to remember that one semi uses 12 to 13 long range model wise worth of batteries. And so your growth rate on the production capacity of semi is going to be extremely limited compared to the growth rate in vehicle unit volume. So and that, you know, I think that even feeds back into the point that I was making earlier about platooning it's going to be pretty hard to just produce enough trucks to really do a lot of platooning um, at least for a little while, especially in a volume that is meaningful enough to even put a minor dent in rail. It also depends on where you, from whence you came. So I'm older than Noah by about uh, 70 years. We don't and, know that. Uh, I grew up in LA in the 60s. And when you drove down the freeway and you tried to see the mountains, you could not see them. Literally. It was absurd. I, I, as a teenager, I would play golf and I'd walk up this little hill like six feet and my lungs would tighten. That, oh. that was just the way it was. So for somebody who comes from that background, the environment is really important because I experienced it and every kid in LA area experienced it. So what I heard, what I, what I found interesting was the discussion about that the trucks were 1% of the total amount of vehicles. They produced like 20% of the pollution and 36% of the particulate matter. So it depends on what you want to focus on. If you're focusing on environmental, then it's, it's a no brainer. I mean, there is no question, but if you're focusing on some mixed bag of profit, other issues, and the environment, then I see why you would kind of mix it up. And I think the battery issue is the biggest issue, because you really, it really puts a strain or a drain on your battery supply. But in terms of the environmental impacts, it's clear that the semi, and I think Elon was pretty uh, clear about that, the semi by far has the most profound impact on the environment. Yeah, I'll play the other side of that. I'll put on a face here and pretend like I'm 
the other side of that. No. <laughs> um, so my dad is kind of the opposite of you. So he's like, you know, doesn't really believe in the environmental change that's happening. And he thinks it's a cyclical thing and it's overblown. So even from the other perspective, I think the bottom line for me is if the numbers show that it's more um, <laughs> less expensive, I can't, I can't take myself seriously right now with this mask on. But <laughs> <laughs> um, if the numbers show that it's cheaper overall, like businesses, you know, fleets, what have you, they're, they're just going to buy into it. It's, it's going to be that quick of a change, just like with Hertz and what they're doing with, you know, model threes and Ys and their commercial fleets. So um, I think they come to, I'm, I'm ultimately saying I'm coming to the same conclusion. Like it's going to happen um, whether you believe in the environmental and like you're pro environmental or you're not. Um, I, I think ultimately the bottom line is um, if it is more efficient money wise, it's going to happen regardless. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I love how you put on the mustache just for that message. That's that was freaking brilliant. <laughs> and I was, what I was going to say is about, so I don't necessarily, not to be opposite to your father, but I don't believe necessarily that of causes. So if there's no rain, I just accept the fact there's no rain. I don't attribute that to anything. And in the end, I think, well, if we improve the environment as a side benefit, then so be it. But if there's a problem, there's a problem. So you deal with the problem. I'm not going to attribute the cause because who the hell knows? You know, we're talking about a year or 10 years or 100 years in the life of a 6 billion year old planet. So this is like a blink in the eye. So who really knows? But I, but in my view is, so, you know, what's the downside? You know, what's, and ultimately, especially if it's profitable, what's the downside? There is no downside. Yeah, that sort of. Uh, overlap of it just so happens that the most business savvy decision is good for the environment is the most powerful like force for uh, this whole thing that's happening right now with call it the renewable energy or whatever. It's just going to make way more sense to operate this type of solution in a lot of use cases from a monetary perspective. And it's better for the environment, you know, and like there's a lot of folks out there that say, well, you know, the mining the batteries and all this stuff has uh very uh you know potential bad things from a pollution perspective or whatever but net net if you look at the whole life cycle of it there's a lot of studies that prove that that's not the case so that's that's a whole different conversation but it's that the the, the building of momentum towards that becoming a well-known thing in society where it's not because necessarily of the environment it's it just makes sense to do it just happens to be good for the environment is uh is a shift it's becoming a shift and as we were talking through somebody brought up the point of actually hans go ahead i saw you come off mute go ahead i was just gonna say and yeah that that is not by accident i know i've talked about this before but um tim urban in one of his wait but why articles digging into i believe it was the chef in his secret sauce that Elon understands that the way to create change is to create an economic forcing function that drives that change. And that's just his fancy term for, yeah, if you make the right thing to do, the cheapest thing to do, then that's what everyone's going to do. And so that was his core insight. That is exactly how he has architected both SpaceX and Tesla is to create these massive changes in society by drastically reducing the cost of the thing that is ultimately what we ought to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating transition 
Um, any other thoughts around semi or like the one thing that was going through my mind was the impact to, and this is tied to the semi, like the impact to the displacement of work, quote unquote, potentially, if there is no additive effect from the semi being launched and it creating, say, more jobs or more industry for people to take part of and folks get disrupted, there was a thought around, hey, should Tesla be responsible for or at least help in creating a, a thing where the, that displaced workforce has the ability to, um, I don't know, I hate to, to use the word retrain because like people people should be able to do what they want to do, right? Like we shouldn't be forcing like this learn to code thing is like boils my blood because it's like, okay, like this is crazy. What we should do is enable people to really pursue what they're good at and they want to do, right? So I was half thinking about this and you guys tell me if I'm crazy. What if, what if the way to enable a lot of folks that could be disrupted by the displacement of work through automation is for the government to purchase a bunch of Tesla stock <laughs> and then Tesla stock implement some sort of dividend and then all shareholders, i.e. the government, like the people of the United States are now taking the the dividend gets dis distributed to all citizens of the states. And that's that's like one way of creating universal basic income, quote unquote, but it's through the private sector to try and alleviate some of these things. And I'm, I'm kind of taking this uh, a little bit different direction, but um, call me crazy. We can skip this topic entirely, but I was thinking about that. Uh, and maybe this is like 10 to 20 years down the road or even more. Um, am I, am I crazy? How do you guys think about that? Farzad, you're crazy. Thank you. <laughs> it's an interesting thought exercise. Um, if you can ignore the practicalness of it, like if, if it's, if we actually think it's relevant and actually going to happen, like put that to the side and just think of like, um, say this happened in the future, you know, um, that's interesting. I mean, it's another way of interpreting or thinking about universal basic income, you know, and how that would look or be structured. Um, I, I don't know how to, without putting it bluntly, like I, I don't want the government to have any, any sort of anything like the less, less is more with, in my opinion, but yeah. Okay. Ahead, yeah, practically, I don't <laughs> expect to see the government ever buy Tesla stock. At, like, I like the idea of, you know, basically ownership stake in a productive asset being something that can then pay it forward to future generations. Or, yeah, like, also as a welfare net for society. Um, but ultimately, so you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, we don't have to wait for the government to do the right thing that needs to be done. This could also be something that Tesla shareholders band together and allocate portions of stock to that type of cause. Yeah. I also think that you're, you have, you're professing more of a European view than a, than a uh, view of, from the United States. Um, I was born in Spain I, after all. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which is appropriate. That is in Europe, right? I think. Um, I, I just use today. I, I think, you know, probably half the country thinks the government provides too much to people. And I think those same people would not be, they would not be, they'd be resistant to a system where the government basically supported half the population. And, you know, you, you said that it requires time. 
it requires a lot of time and a lot of change um, or else I, I just don't see it as being uh, possible in the near term. Here's another thought. Like what if there were certain things that were deemed um, no longer pro like you cannot make a profit doing these professionally specifically around like um, living like um, sheltering somebody like food and shelter specifically what if that was like rethought in such a way that um, <laughs> no no lawyers from a lawyer sorry um, what if that was rethought about um, what about certain sectors you know in the future if we do have robot robots at a mass scale that like are basically no longer they're, they're basically a, a, a right to humans to have food and shelter or like some sort of minimum things would that be another way of thinking about universal basic income i i think so i mean the way i think about it is just like how do you maximize the chance of a human being to achieve their full potential based on how they want to achieve it like that's that's ultimately should be the goal of anything that gets implemented to um fill the void or uh, just get to the point where people are truly able to do what they want to do and not have to fear for their, um, you know, welfare. But at the same time, and this is like the, the hardest piece of this puzzle, to also incentivize useful work and to incentivize value. And that's that's where this whole thing gets difficult. And and I don't know why I'm I'm trying so hard to solve for it but I feel like, I don't know, man, like, like the concept of a company that is going to create a ridiculous amount of value through automation and robotics, somehow being part of the solution makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. So like, how do we, how do we make that happen? Or is that like, do we have to wait to get further into the future to be able to even realistically have those discussions? Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a topic that's just uh you know, a lot of people call me crazy for it, but it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, I feel like it's, it's hard. It's hard. And it's, and it's, a, it's going to be a potential gap in, in the near future. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. I've just put such a huge damper on the mood here. Somebody, somebody say a joke. <laughs> well, I was going to say something. And I, I think that we need better science fiction movies. I think okay. our, our science fiction makes us too scared about the future. Every kind of like high tech, you know, I know, I know it sounds like a joke, but I'm, I think in a way you kind of brainwash people, you repeat kind of the same message time and time. Every kind of like science fiction movie has like the bad government that, you know, is doing things to the poor populations, everybody. And that's almost all of those big time. So let's have some new science fiction movies that show, you know, ex exploration and success and positive mm. feelings and let's kind of put that message out because you know i was watching like uh colbert last night and he was talking about elon the whole monologue was kind of like a thing on elon so let's get some positive vibes let's kind of change the trajectory of uh people's minds what was he just shitting on elon like what, what was he saying Curious. he was yes they were talking about twitter they were talking about the check the check marks i see i see I, that's a great point. I think I think uh, creating uh, things that inspire people to look at the future in a more positive manner is probably uh, under underrated, and it could be a big piece to move us to a better future altogether as humanity. You know, 
Um, very interesting point. Let's um, Q4. So we're in December now and second, and we are 29 days away from the end of the quarter. There is a lot of thing that's happening, things that are happening with Tesla that are have been going under the radar for the last couple of months because of the whole Twitter craziness. How are you guys thinking about Q4? What do you think is going to happen here? What, do you guys have any predictions? There's some delivery numbers out there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I was very optimistic. And I, you know, the most recent delivery numbers I saw as much as 450. I saw like a day ago and in the range of 440 to 450. But then last night I heard on Rob, Rob's, um, he was doing a, a live stream also. He said that there was some report that starting on November 28th and running through the 2nd of December, that there was a shutdown at the Shanghai plant and um, had not gotten confirmation. And it was to the second, so that would be today. And in the past, the way those lock, lockdowns work, they would set a date and then they'd extend a date, whatever. So he didn't know if it was true, but if that's true and we get another reduction in production, that's gonna affect the ultimate numbers, so. Hmm. Was, was it related to COVID or was it a, an upgrade to the factory? He didn't st state, but it seemed to be related to COVID it was more the okay. direction. Gotcha. Yeah, the, the numbers that I'm seeing being thrown around is 450. Uh, I have 450 in my model to try and figure out what the what what sort of the profitability is going to be or the or the EPS and the and the net income. Um, Troy Testlike is somebody that I follow very closely to get those numbers, and he has um you know a, a Patreon and he also has public information. He delays the sort of the public information by a week or two. Um, and I don't want to sort of talk about his, uh, the, the private stuff, because obviously I would destroy his old model. So, um, the, but the, the last public report he had, I think he had Tesla 425 or 420 for the quarter, but that was a, a few weeks ago. And the thing that happened around China, not getting additional incentives. Yeah. Tro test like right there. Thank you. Producer wife, man, you're on fire. So what's his latest Thing. So Tesla's production was 930,000 in 2021. The target is 50% growth this year. You can listen to here. Uh, can you scroll down a little bit to the next um, tweet there? Uh, Tesla Naples through December 31st, all new US Model 3 and Model Y deliveries will receive an adjustment of $3,700 off the price of the car. Limited inventory available for immediate delivery. Reply yes. Okay. So this suggests Tesla's extending the $3,700 discount to model three and white orders in the US placed before today. Okay. Um, interesting. Yeah, Troy Teslike, if you don't follow him on Twitter, make sure you you, you follow his stuff. He, he gives a lot of information around this. But so it looks like we have a incentive for US cars through the end of the year, then we have the IRA kicking in in January. And you have a potential shutdown in, in China for the net for the last four days that might be COVID related or not. Um, but it, it does seem like the 450 number is achievable, even given all those things uh with everything that's going on the question becomes how much profit they're going to make in these cars because they did have a uh incentive uh or uh what was it the insurance option a free insurance option in china or something that doesn't technically impact the gross margin of the car it's just really an incentive to get the get the car sold where, where the customer gets a discount on the back end um yeah i don't know i i think it might surprise a lot of people the streets at 4 30 uh, the last time I saw, so that there, there's a lot of positives lining up for the company. 
Um, the, the mystery factor, I think, is that it, that twenty thousand dollar. Remember that twenty thousand car invent that that magical twenty thousand that was in transit that had been yeah. produced. And I don't know if Troy accounts for that. I don't know if the inventory will significantly increase. But I did see a chart today that said at the end of the third quarter that the inventory was at its lowest point relative to production ever. So that doesn't suggest that the inventory is ballooning. But that 20,000 mystery, that might be, you know, maybe they deliver 430 plus 20, you know, and that would be the 450. I don't know. But I don't, that, that inventory amount always seemed kind of confusing to me. They would have to unwind the delivery wave. Um, or sorry, not, they would have to actually go all in on a delivery wave in order to deliver those 20,000 cars uh, that they produced last quarter and then all that they produced this quarter. Um, so if they're if they're unwinding, then you would expect the inventory at the end of the quarter to actually grow at a point or at a rate that's basically equivalent to the growth in deliveries overall. Um, this are is the, the absolute number. So you know maybe it's twenty thousand this quarter, twenty two, twenty four, twenty six that as they deliver more cars each quarter, they need a higher number in inventory at the end of the quarter in order to have the same number of days of inventory in stock. Um, and then, yeah, as you're switching from a delivery wave model to an unwound model, you also need a higher number in in inventory at the end to keep your delivery smooth. So, Yeah, so you... Oh, you're muted for a second. Okay. Yeah. To your point, I was going to say, so I wonder what that, if we can calculate that, if there was 20,000 cars, was that October or was that for Q3? Like what, where that buffer is and maybe we can extrapolate. It, it would have been on the, yeah, on October 31st. Mm -hmm. For that month of October then? Because to your point, if they they're, scale. They're reporting, they're reporting the amount that they had in inventory on the day that the quarter ended. So okay. that 20,000 number is as of October 31st. Mm -hmm. And then do we know, uh, I don't know top of yeah. the head, we could look it up, but how many they delivered in, in that quarter then? Or yeah, I guess, sorry, September, it would have been September 30th. Okay. Is what that number would have been. Cause then we can get a percentage of essentially in transit or like buffering, you know, cars that are mm -hmm. essentially buffering each quarter. And then that will scale, as you're saying towards, um, yeah. you know, future years, they should roughly have the same percentage unless their logistics are changing or adapting to allow more or less of that percentage over time. But that's super interesting. And, and I think that um, the point was they're, they're not going to deliver what they produce. So I think there's still a gap. So they might produce 460. Let's say they delivered 430. And they still had 20 plus, that's still 450. And those numbers may be wrong, but I agree, you know, as they produce more models, they're gonna have a greater number of inventory. Um, but um, I still think there's room where they could do in the 440 to 40, 450 range. Good ones. Pretty yeah. close. No, to, I agree. Pretty close to hitting what 2021 was 500K total. So almost in one quarter roughly that's pr that's pretty good i wonder i kind of another trend thing of like if that will happen you know over the next year it'll match one quarter of production and then the other trend is like i think q4 is usually the highest production quarter every year 
both from a sales perspective, because people tend to buy a lot of cars towards the end of the year, I guess, around the holiday season. And then obviously Tesla's continue continuously growing over time. Yeah, historically, they've entered into Q4 with a surplus of inventory, and then they've they've actually delivered more cars than produced in Q4. So that'll be interesting to watch this year to see if, you know, if, if they really are running into delivery bottlenecks um, in transportation capacity. I don't know how they would continue to do that. I, th- I, think- I saw something recently, I think it relates to this in some way. Um, some of you may know Chicken Genius or the name. And so he has a, uh, I guess he provides uh, a service under a different name. So I, I kind of discovered that. So I got something and he was, he was talking about cash conversion. And um, he said the only three companies that have a negative cash conversion rate are Apple, Amazon, and Tesla. And in effect, what it means is you're letting your suppliers fund your operation. And so he was saying that, for example, Apple doesn't pay their suppliers for 110 days after they deliver their product. That's crazy. Yeah. So they're just, they don't need to use any of their own money. And that's why they can buy back their stock. That's why they can do dividends, whatever. And he said that, you know, that um, Tesla was the only other company besides Amazon that was in that. And I, I presume that, you know, ultimately their goal would be to extend that period in which they can pay their suppliers and probably as they become a bigger share of those suppliers business then they can make those demands as as things go on but i thought it was pretty interesting how how in effect those companies finance their business without using uh you know financial uh institutional money using basically the people they're buying from to fund their own business mm-hmm. So that is highly dependent on growth rate as well. Your cash conversion cycle is not extremely important if you're not growing. Um, But if you are growing and you have a negative cash conversion cycle, then it puts you in a sticky situation as a company because your cash needs are growing faster than your revenue uh, because you need to pay more for the future production that you have, then you've got revenue coming in on the back end. But then if you can flip it around and you can have that negative cash conversion cycle to where you're paying your suppliers after you actually get paid for the product, then the faster you grow, the larger your cash cushion actually becomes. Uh, so that's a huge and extremely important factor uh, when you're trying to grow at 50% per year on a compound annual growth rate. Uh, so that's that's one of the reasons why Tesla's in the position that they're in because they probably wouldn't be able to execute the business model without doing that. My understanding is that they have pretty standard terms that unlike Apple where they're really throwing their weight around, I think it's just 60 days. But, you know, if they're... Is it 90? Probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, and even 90 is not uncommon. Uh, 100 and some is just ridiculous. But... Anyways, they're able to produce their cars and deliver them, get them in the hands of customers so quickly that they're still able to collect that money from customers before they're actually having to pay suppliers on the back end. So, yeah, I just wanted to to connect both the growth rate to cash conversion cycle. And then, yeah, I don't like I don't think that Tesla's really um, 
trying to rake their suppliers over the coals, I think they're operating within kind of an industry standard payment terms framework, even with their with their suppliers. Yeah. The one variable I'm looking forward to in this sort of context of how Tesla is going to perform this quarter, like a lot of the things we're talking about here is why why they create so much profit and why they're able to do what they're doing. But I'm wondering if now, if, if in Q4, we're going to get to a situation where, especially with like a recession that seems to be taking hold with all the actions that the Fed's doing and the other automakers, how is the rest of the car industry going to look in Q4, which is a seasonally, like Noah was talking about, sort of a seasonally high sale period for traditional auto versus a Tesla? Like, how are GM and Ford and all these other companies going to uh, report versus previous year's Q4? My gut tells me that it's not going to be nearly as uh, high as, as the previous quarter, and the growth is not going to be there because of uh, what I feel is a general tightness from the population when it comes to spending on stuff. Like, when I just talk to random people or I hear stories like, the, so my brother has had a, uh, he's trying to sell his Chevy Volt, and I'll, I'll use it as a, as a, as a proxy. Uh, a Volt, not a Bolt, a Volt, which is like the dumbest naming convention a car company could have came up with because nobody really knows what I'm talking about when I say Volt or Bolt. They're like, oh, the Bolt. No, the Volt, right? So uh, he's dropped the price multiple times, and he still hasn't had anybody buy the car. And that to me tells me that there is a, people are not buying things right now nearly as much as, as they used to. That might be a uh, kind of a watershed moment for some of these um, car companies in Q4 when they are expected to have giant sales and they don't report that. And then in contrast, you have Tesla that's likely to have another record quarter. Not likely. It will definitely have another record quarter. And then you have this, again, this widening gap, this widening gap between one company and the other one. I wonder if that's going to be a big catalyst for uh, the next year in addition to the Fed looks like they're pivoting, right? Um, it seems like we have a lot of catalysts starting to to coalesce. But the legacy auto one for Q4, I think is one not very many people are talking about. I believe it's going to send some shockwaves uh, because it, it will be a... I, I'm predicting that it's going to be a pretty big deal. It's going to signal a lot of things. Oh my God, people are not buying nearly as... It's going to be a confirmation. I feel like all of us can feel it. Like when we're talking to people, all of us can feel that people are just spending less. Houses, you know, have come to a standstill. No one's really buying a new car right now that I that I know of. My brother's trying to sell his used car and he can't. What do you guys think about that? Do you guys have any general feelings around that? Is is that something you guys can confirm, deny? I would love to hear your thoughts. And the comment yeah, section too. My understanding is specifically around used cars over COVID, you know, the, the demand obviously dropped off and then it came back steadily and, and then went crazy for a little bit. And I think now we're on the uh, opposite side of that swing where there's more um, cars um, and the, the ba basically the overpriced used car market is starting to drop. And I, I think that relates to what your brother's going through right now. And by the way, I know somebody in California who's looking for a Volt with a V. So uh, let's oh, connect snap. about that. <laughs> send me. Yeah, send me yeah we'll connect about that. But yeah, so maybe it's it's that as far as like the bigger, broader strokes go. Um, but I mean, th the ultimate thing too, I think is what's going to happen eventually, um, sediment around uh, 
EV car adoption obviously is still like on its S curve on the upswing of that, but there'll be a tipping point. Um, and hopefully it'll be the, more so when the $25,000 car is being mass produced and already in the swing of things, but there'll be a tipping point where essentially the general public will no longer want uh, gas cars right right now people i think the general sentiment that i've gotten from friends and family people are like they know it's there but they don't think it's ready yet right whereas we're kind of like earlier in that adoption curve so we're we're already buying our teslas and have our our electric cars and um are excited about it but i think the general public that 50 percent you know adoption rate or what have you like they're not quite there yet and it's really um lagging because of the production obviously of tesla can't get to that spot yet and they're going to over time we see that trend happening but um to what you're describing and talking about i think that will really take effect where essentially gas cars will drop significantly even even more so because everybody's going to see that value and, and see that in, in electric cars and see that the gas car is no longer relevant and not worth holding on to or keeping you know yeah hans or uh, jason any thoughts Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. And I think that um, I don't know if it'll be Q4 where we really see that narrative start to shift. It, it very well could be. But the other thing that I'm thinking about is the basically segmenting out the growth in their EV business versus their declining ICE sales. That I think that if people are looking at the financials, it's like, oh, you are growing your EV sales but it's not very fast and this is not a profitable part of your company and yeah you suffered 10 or 15 percent decline the thing is since it is q4 i think they're probably they might get just enough cover they might not sell as many as they would have sold in like comparative increase from q3 to q4 from earlier years but they might sell enough more than Q3 to look like, hey, you know, we had a, a a decent quarter. It won't be as glaringly obvious how scary that was. I think it might be a little bit basically um, shielded or, yeah, not not as easy to read in the financials this year. We'll see. Um, I think it'll be less than Q3. That's how bad I think it's going to be. If it is, that would be that would be crazy. Because that implies Q1 is going to be so bad too, right? Abysmal. If you really think about yeah. it. Yeah. That's, that's what my gut's telling me. And I have no data to back it up, but that's what my gut's telling me. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I was going to say is I, I don't see, and I kind of agree with both Noah and Hans, I don't see anybody, well, one, I the attitude I think is wait and see. That's my, what I hear, people are just kind of, they don't know. So they're cautious and they're going to wait to see how it plays out. They're not like crazy, but they're cautious. And I would think the, the relative percentages of ICE cars to, to electric, they'll, the percentages will change over the next year or two. So the, there'll be a greater, I don't know if there'll be substantially more electric cars sold, but it, as a percentage of the total, it will be a greater amount. And I think anybody who's questioning whether to get an ICE car or an electric car will probably wait and eventually go electric. And ultimately, I think this will be the final nail in the coffin for ICE cars. Um, 
on top of that, I was thinking about something else, you know, because it bothers me. Um, not it's indirectly related to this, but it bothers me. You know, so many people have or at least a lot of people have negative views of Elon and how that might play on demand. And I, you know, I was thinking about that and it worries me. But then I think about it in a different way. I think about like I think of Tesla like the Raiders. That's how I kind of compare it. So there's like 50% of the country that despises the Raiders and would never buy any type of Raider memorabilia. And there's 50% of the population that would buy like nine pennants and eight Teslas and whatever. <laughs> so you don't have to sell to 350 million. If you just sell to 175 million and they buy your stuff, that's sufficient. And that kind of gave me a little peace. So I don't have to worry because that's the world. You know, you're not going to please please everybody. But again, it's kind of like the law of physics. To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And in that case, that kind of gives me, uh, makes me feel good about ultimate future demand. Yeah, I think, I think future demand is, I agree with you 100%. And, the, and ultimately, the, the way I think about it is, Tesla's going to have a giant cost advantage against everybody else in the next, in the next two years. They will have more than likely the cheapest cost per mile transportation system in the world and robo taxi and the $25,000 car. And I don't think that can be argued. It's going to be incredibly cheap to operate on a per mile basis. And when you're starting to get into the masses, I believe that people don't give a shit about what the brand quote unquote means. Is it going to save me money? Am I going to be able to live the life that I want because it's going to free up my resources to do it? And Amazon and is it convenient enough so that it's going to bring value to my life? The the value and sort of the brand thing that and this is sort of I'm evolving with this thought process. I think it's a it's quite a um, I think it's in our bubble that we are very concerned about what people think about Elon and what what he's doing to the brand. I think ultimately, if they make the product as cost effective and as good as humanly possible none of this matters and literally amazon's the perfect example so jeff bezos got dragged through the mud a thousand times over open investigations investigations into how shitty their warehouses are and all this other stuff a lot of employees coming forward talking about being mistreated is anybody stopping using amazon no not at all and i'm not saying that it's going to be okay for elon to fuck everything up and like mistreat everybody. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is when it comes to the product itself and when it comes to mass adoption, people are cost conscious first and foremost, cost conscious second, and then cost conscious third. And then how uh, convenient is it going to be for me four through 10? After that, it's like, okay, oh, uh, Elon's cool. Tesla's are cool. I don't know. That's how I think about it. And, and that's why I'm I, I'm, I've come to the conclusion that I'm 0% worried about the current drama that's happening around the company and Elon. Yeah. They will virtue signal and say they won't buy it, but then they'll still yeah. buy it. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's funny, like um, people ultimately will act in their best self-interest, right? And and that's the argument that's often, often made against capitalism is like these few, you know, billionaires are working in their self-interest, but that's how people work. Like Amazon, like you just said, is a perfect example of how we're going to work in our own best self-interest because it's cheaper for us. It's better for us. <laughs> you know, that's just how it works. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and they very well mean what they say. You know, they might say that they're never going to buy a Tesla, 
and it might be also corresponding to a time they don't really need a car, and it's easy to say that. And then three years later, their their conversation changes. I'd never buy a Tesla, but it's the best car and best value, so I will. You know, yeah. and they'll hold their nose or whatever, and they'll enjoy the product. Yeah. Yep. For me, I just got my Model Y, and um, you know, I'm I'm been a huge Tesla fan since about 2020, and um, talking to my wife and like. To me, the bottom line was the safety concern and like having her out of a two door sports car, you know, car that she got when she was 16 kind of deal. And it's kind of on its last, you know, it's getting older to me. It's like it's the safest car ever made, you know, and to me, having that was the deciding factor. And yes, it's expensive. Yes, there's lots of other things that come with it. And yes, I'm a huge Tesla fan. But like set all that aside, it's the safest car ever made. And that's why I got you that car, you know. Yeah. I love that comment that was just posted. My wallet made me buy it. That's like a brilliant way of putting it. My wallet made me buy it. Hans, you came off mute earlier. Not sure if you wanted to add something. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to just circle back to the Q4 thing. The other thing that I'm excited to watch for is what Tesla's EV share ends up being that, you know, their EV share was artificially suppressed by the lack of production in Shanghai. So as long as we don't get any funny business in the month of December and Shanghai is able to operate even at, you know, 90, 95% of what it should. If there are no day or two or three shutdowns for COVID, um, that that will revert and Tesla's EV share could grow. And, you know, I think a lot of the competition is coming narrative is fueled by the fact that Tesla's share of EVs dropped a little bit while shanghai was shut down so yeah if you know not only is it not shut down but they expanded capacity so much it should more than offset the growth in deliveries by other manufacturers they may actually get to a record high ev share this quarter and um, yep. yeah what that does to the story of the stock because that's what people like gary black think about and care about they if tesla just destroys every other company in EV share, uh, that changes the way that analysts look at the company moving forward and do their discounted cash flow models. And that's yeah, why I want the factory announcement because that also changes the analysis because then they have to factor in additional capacity. And we know that, well, it appears that is imminent. I, I mean, I, I was hoping for the end of this year, but it sounds like it's imminent. Um, and I think that will dramatically impact the valuation uh, currently. Yeah, I was just going to say the levers that Tesla can pull, one of the levers, if they do see some sort of diminish in demand, which I don't expect, is fleet cars, like going to Hertz and going to these other rental places and explaining the business proposition of how within a few years, uh, it'll be cheaper overall cost to maintain and own those cars. And to take that even a step further, what if Tesla created their own fleet model right and had a rental system around that but um going back to jason's point <laughs> uh, a moment ago like factories i know there's been some open debate about where the next factory is going to be to me it's more of like yes and like yes mexico yes canada yes uh, thailand like all of those i think will happen over time it's more of like lining them lining them up and seeing which one will land where and i think all of them will move uh, sequentially in order but then um, we'll see a pilot line happen for the $25,000 car, and then that will scale out to those other factories. Yeah. 
the 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 what I keep coming back to is like, and I I guess I'll use this to wrap up this topic, and then we'll open it up for Q and A if you guys are okay with it, like five ten minutes of Q and A. Um, yeah, in the comments, if you want to ask a question for the panel, type question before your comment. Uh, put it down, and then producer wife will only pick out the best, only the best. What it, what I always come back to, especially in this environment, and how beat up the stock market has gotten. Tesla's probably going to report somewhere between four and a half to five billion dollars in Q4 in net income. That's twenty billion annualized, and that's before the growth of the company into 2023, 2024, and 2025 with Cybertruck, the Robo Taxi, the semis, and full self-driving. So within the next one to three years, Tesla's going to be generating upwards of who knows, 50 to $100 billion of net income per year. And that just makes it completely ridiculous. Like, I just don't understand. It does not compute anymore. Like, literally, my brain just breaks. And I'm like, okay, what, what's happening now? So uh, it's almost like the, the, the things that have happened recently with the stock market and how depressed Tesla has been in, in relation to that sort of downturn has so much strengthened the story <laughs> into the next year that if the right catalysts are aligned between the Fed uh, pivoting, Tesla reporting really good margins and, and profitability, the rest of the auto industry, hopefully not, but what's probably going to happen is they're going to start really suffering. I think a flight to safety and FOMO is going to be a legitimate story for Tesla in 2023. A very legitimate story. And that's what I'm most excited about, to be completely honest. Yeah. I 100% agree. I don't know if we'll get all of those things kind of coalescing in Q4, but we Why see not, damn it. the dominoes. <laughs> it may be. It may be. But I think if you say, hey, 2023, by the end of 2023, absolutely. Like, we don't know if it's going to be this month, next month. Um, but yeah, the Fed is not going to keep interest rates this high for ever. And then we see the progress that Tesla's making on their execution. It'll just be ridiculous, you know, especially then if we can deliver, which we should deliver sequential unit delivery growth from Q4 to Q1, which we've only done a couple of times. Typically Q4 comes in higher than the following Q1. Um, that I, I just can't imagine a world where the stock is not significantly rewarded by some time in Q2 for all of the progress that Tesla has made on their fundamentals this year. Yeah. So I'll take a little bit of a different stab at that. I think that all the things that Farzad, you said they will accomplish, but I don't think that relates to the stock. That's just the business. And you know, the stock and the business are operating on different paths. And I think eventually the stock will catch up to the business, but we don't know when that is. And that's what makes it so frustrating, right? So we could perform perfectly 2023, 2024, the stock could be stable. And then on January 9th, 2025, it goes up 105% one day. I mean, yeah. that's how that's how the market works. So um, all we could focus is on the business. The business is solid. The stock we don't control. And um, we have to be really patient. The, voice well, of the counterpoint to that is Gary Black, you know, he talked about the... PE is it basically historic lows. It's never been 
disallowed or the peg ratio. I can't remember if he said PE or if it was a peg ratio. Either one, it's basically at a historical all-time low right where it's been. And now we I see that it hasn't continued to decline, that it, it seems like it's kind of rebounding in a bounce off the bottom. We'll see if that continues. Um, but if we have significant net income increases in Q4 and then again in Q1, that should the the stock price will have to move higher now how much we don't know but it will have to move higher just to maintain a historically low pe ratio and then if we start getting rewarded with a little bit extra pe uh especially a forward pe then it should even more well it should rise at an even faster rate i think the ultimate question for me is like when when will the general public see the value in Tesla like we do. <laughs> um, and I think it, it really comes to when the world gets that electric cars are the future um, at mass scale. Um, and like I said, I still think we're early in that adoption curve, even though we're ahead of that curve and we know it's coming and we see the writing on the wall, but percentage wise, we're still, you know, less than what, 20% now, I think. 2021 was 6% we're going to hit roughly what 10 or 12% this year and 2022. Right. And so when that gets to 50% or more, I think that's when it will be more uh, valued. I don't think that it has to be the general public who gets that. I just think it really has to be institutional money managers have to get that. And I think they all already believe that electric is the future of mobility, but they see a, future world in which competitors crowd out Tesla's ability to dominate the market, which is not the world that exists. Um, there's no other competitor currently who can move fast in that. Like it goes back to the SMR analogy. Tesla is the Usain Bolt of the EV industry and they're way ahead of the field and they're still accelerating. Um, and so no other competitor will be able to come in to do that. So that's the question is how long does it take for institutional money managers to realize that they have a 100% chance of dominating the profits of the entire auto industry for the foreseeable future? It's a great point. I, I would expect some more PE compression if we have a recession. So I don't think we're at the end and, uh, you know, and, if we're at 200, I'm just making up numbers. If we're 200 today and we go down 20%, if the market goes 20% down more and we're at buck 60, we could certainly go up. We go up 30%, we're back to 200. So you could rise and we may rise, but it just may be a slower path to back to the all time high. And again, I think it's just, it's independent of the business, at least for now. I'm, I'm very confident that those will meet but I'd have no idea when that will be. Yeah, that's fair. Putting putting a timing on it is, yeah. So 2023, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the the overarching story, and I'll wrap this up and then we can get into Q&A here. So um, for me is the fear of the company, and I agree with you, like the, like somehow the, the stock and the business will meet up together at some point. If it's 2023, 2025, who cares when it is? But the the primary fear of a lot of these folks around competition and like Tesla's not going to be able to have the same market size. I think that like what gets lost every time is that if you're able to reduce the cost per mile of that solution, then your market automatically grows exponentially. So if the net cost per mile 
uh, of transportation sector through electrification cuts it in half or more, that's probably a 4x increase in the global customer base. Like, I don't know why folks don't understand that. It's so obvious. So then why are we worried about competition? Anyway, Q&A. Sorry. Uh, did anybody want to say something before we go there? Yeah, I was just going to say that's the thing that underlies those, you know, people always, experts make that linear prediction into the future. And it's because they miss exactly that. Like if you're, if you're operating under rights law, you're actually declining your cost curve. You're growing your market as you continue to deliver more and more units. And then it turns your business into an exponential curve instead of a linear curve. You got it. I was just going to derail the conversation and just give props to Farzad and the team, um, <laughs> wife producer, <laughs> um, and what you guys are doing. Because to me, like this YouTube channel has been a find of the year for me, like 2022, like wow. all-star status <laughs> in the Damn. Tesla community. Because um, not only is the production value awesome, which is what I love, um, you're, you're bringing, building a huge community and bringing the community together. Like um, you're respected by every youtuber that i've seen come on your channel like and having them point back to you it's, it's just been a really strong like glue that's brought everything together and this com the conversations that you have here are special for sure damn man that's very sweet thank you so much that means a lot honestly I that's could, I, I couldn't disagree more with noah <laughs> good i'm glad <laughs> i literally heard my wife laughing from downstairs <laughs> after you said that all right let's bring up some uh some uh, she said shut up uh bring up some questions here uh let's go uh that was so that was so sweet thank you man that that was very very sweet let's uh pull up a question uh michael what type of vehicle would the panel like to see um that's a very broad question i'm assuming for the robo taxi uh that's that's how i'm gonna take it i because that's like super broad uh the way i think about it is and i've talked about it previously i think if they come out with a solution that really just drops costs per mile to the absolute minimum so that it becomes the cheapest transportation per mile solution in the world then uh this whole electrification movement will be basically 100 percent secured so if they can do that that's what i'm most looking forward to what about the panel i think selfishly the cyber truck because i'm i love my truck i'm super into trucks i think Business-wise, because I am a small business owner, it's the cyber van um, because I need to haul equipment and stuff around. And then for the mass public, it's the robo taxi or the twenty-five thousand dollar model that will really create that wide adoption for EVs and Tesla's future. Okay. I'm gonna echo what Corey said last night. Just selfishly, we have way too many kids even to fit in a Model X right now. I need the giant cyber sub. Nice. I think this is a softball question. It is so obvious. I was a huge Jetson fan. Obviously, it's got to be a flying car. Obviously. <laughs> Fair enough. Jason is a fan of flying cars. Next question. <laughs> what do we got? Uh, question, Tesla price at the end of 2023, what do you think? Yeah, what do you think? I, um, yeah, we should probably not, like, throw out numbers out there just because, you know, not financial advice. 
it's impossible to tell. I mean, I think Jason brought up, you know, I didn't know Jason was so well versed in uh, in finance and stocks, but uh, you don't know what the stock market's going to do, especially in the case of a recession. So for me, I don't even want to answer the question because I feel like it's, I don't, I don't know if it brings value. What do you guys think? If you guys have the number you want to throw out there, go for it. But Well, so I like Dave Lee's perspective on things that he basically discounts his portfolio by 70% because he knows how volatile things are so yeah i think that uh tesla could be worth basically double its all-time high by the end of 2023 but discounted 70 percent back to still sub uh pre-split 1200 prices I... good i think it'll be somewhere between 100 and 412. okay and nice. my my pick today and mark this down is gonna be 298. By the end of 2023. End of 2023. Okay. I'm writing it down right now. What if you Minus get it wrong? between 69 <laughs> and 420. Oh that's that's the right answer. I think that's the answer he was looking for. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a financial model, unfortunately. <laughs> i I I'm not blessed with the financial background and knowledge yet um but i am learning i i would say like 2023 is a good like minimum target but i'm more looking even further out but i mean yeah i don't i don't have numbers to crunch for that one well since you guys are throwing out the numbers and i said it's not valuable i'm gonna freaking throw up mine damn it uh my i do have a model uh 657 big number but that's if they uh at a pe of 58 on Let's see, on $33 billion of net income. That's From your lips to God's ears. Yeah, let's see if it happens. <laughs> what Next if, uh, can you change? Well, I guess we can do it, but it's a little over $300 if you set a PE of 30 instead of 58. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Aaron, given V3 charging curve, 500 miles on 93% charge. Oh, just like a whole math exercise. It would mean a peak charging rate of 2100. Why do they only say one megawatt plus then? Um, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking about this yesterday. That was one of the things that I was trying to tease out with Nick on the stream. Um, yeah, if they're saying it's a one megawatt charger and they're saying that they can get 70% of charge, like that should mean that the max charge, like if it was a perfect charging curve and you've got a one kilowatt hour pack and you can charge at one kilowatt hours and you should, or sorry, you have a one megawatt, yeah, a one megawatt hour battery pack. So that's a thousand kilowatt hours and you can charge at one megawatt, then it should take you an hour to charge. If you can put all of the energy from the charger into the battery. Um, but you can't because there's a charging curve. And so that would imply that it would take, uh, whatever 70% of 60 minutes is to get to that 70% charge at the one megawatt charging rate. And so if you're saying that you can get that in 30 minutes, which is too short, then yeah, you're, you're charging it over that one megawatt rate. So I, I don't understand exactly how all that works. It seems like 
there's definitely some specs that we're not getting. Hans is a smarter person than me that can go through those numbers. I mean, just from the just from reading it and like going through the math to me, it makes sense. But I'm going to derail us a little bit because I, I can't fully explain it and just say I my jaw dropped when they said that was coming to Cybertruck and that it would be in mm. future vehicles. And Stephen Mark Ryan highlighted that the word vehicles is important and not just cars. Because uh, obviously, cyber van and then maybe the robo taxi van would be applicable. I'm wondering if that means that for like a, a robo taxi, like a two seater or something smaller, if that would not be applicable for the one megawatt charging setup. Um, but yeah, that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. Also, boats and EV tolls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. But the, what was it? Water cooled charging did they say that that was in something else in the in the presentation mv4 charging they said that That's the cyber truck would be able to use that uh, same cooled uh, connector yeah yeah and then to have whoever's going to figure out that question from aaron but to also extrapolate the time it would what it would take to charge a cyber truck like that would be super cool to to understand what the implications yeah. as of long that. as the pack can accept that that type of you know, charge rate. Theoretically, the way I'm thinking about it is zero to 80% in like five minutes, five to 10 minutes. But then it becomes a question of can the pack accept that much? Um, like what kind of chemistry do you need to be able to do that, right? What's um, the percentage it, of regeneration you can get while driving? I think uh, effectively like, f what was it? Like 20 kilowatts, 25, something like that. Maybe yeah, less. I'm not sure. I think um, Corey was talking about getting 90% efficiency on your regen. So. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. I thought it was closer to 70, but still. But, I mean, either yeah. 70 to 90%, but dang. Okay. Maybe it's different for bigger trucks, too. Like if the semi has a different percentage, because my brother owns a Bolt with a B, and I think his was lower, but, you know, it's a non-Tesla. Um, and then to to also, while we're going down rabbit holes, to talk about or think about um, if Tesla did redesign the trailer portion of a semi, what that would look like with solar batteries and that kind of stuff. Obviously, they've prototyped that, or um, not prototype, but yeah, imagine that with a Cybertruck, and that would be a smaller trailer type thing, which I would also be interested in. But at the you know, 53, 57 foot scale, what that would look like. Yeah. All right, let's do the next one here. Let's do a couple more. Uh, high school. Question. I believe Tesla is late with announcing new factories because they know the RoboTaxi variant will ramp up crazy fast. Is Gigafactory with three or four million RoboTaxis a year possible? This is a great question. So one of the things we talked about on yesterday's stream, and Jason sort of brought this up uh, earlier today about the announcement of new Gigafactories, I do think the Gigafactory announcement is going to be reserved for when they unveil RoboTaxi because because of exactly what you just described the amount of volume they're going to be able to put out from a single factory for that product it's going to be at least 2x at least 2x of the existing um sort of like high number so if we take austin or let's even take fremont they make roughly what 400 no 300 250 to 300,000 model wise a year out of that facility probably maybe more and if you're cutting the new 
sort of car here, the new product in half of parts, half of number of parts, half the cost. Uh, that you already imply that you're going to be able to do 2x the number of units per, uh, say, square foot of a factory. But the manufacturing processes that you'll delete and introduce that are going to be much more efficient is probably closer to a 3x or 4x improvement in net number of units. Because if you take Model S and X and you take Model 3 and Y, Model 3 and Y are half the cost, call it, of Model S and X but it's like four to six X the volume of that product. So when you take half the cost of those products, again, you can probably get to that same uh, multiplier effect. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think yeah. without a new factory unrelated to RoboTaxi that we can reach the numbers. Um, cause I just, cause to me, the ramp up at both Austin and Berlin have been slow in my opinion. And I'm estimating that three, and you know, I'm, this is my numbers for whatever it's worth. I'm estimating if you collectively, excluding Cybertruck, that Austin and Berlin will produce about 700,000 units in 2023. And so to get to like 5 million, and, and it's taken, you know, that's two years, about basically two years in. That's a two year ramp. And so, you have to build out a factory, might take two years to build the factory, then you got to re-ramp that new factory. And unless you get new factories online to just to do the threes and the whys and whatever else, you're just not going to get to the numbers, irrespective of the robo-taxes. So yeah. the counterpoint on that is just battery supply, I think, is still the limiting factor, even for uh, Austin and Berlin. And if the new platform uses half the batteries then you can grow unit deliveries at a faster rate given the same increase in battery supply or the same rate of increase of battery supply no did you have a thought yeah i was actually kind of curious i don't know if this would actually happen but there is a wild card thought of like what if the model 3 became the $25,000 car. Like basically they eliminated, now you, you think they'll still keep it? No way. Yeah. No, I mean, it's going to make way more sense to do a uh, a ground up solution. Cause model three, mm -hmm. that was like the first generation of a mass market car. Yeah. And it, I mean, you compare the model three to the model Y and the model three is a, is a giant wasteful <laughs> thing that just happens to be incredible when it comes to driving dynamics and the infotainment and all that stuff so yeah it's sure. it's going to be 100 percent a, a different part they want to use a lot less material it's going to be smaller in footprint in every way yeah i think yeah. you need to do a new platform to keep the margins true yeah all right let's do one more last one who's going to be the lucky question da -da -da -da. Ross, Twitter, he's given himself two years runway, allowing zero advertisers. And the reason he's been so active, controversial is to keep it relevant and demonstrate how a town square should be. Agree. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 well, let me think about that. He's given himself two years runway. Does anybody have any thoughts? I think he acts more impulsively than that. So I wouldn't uh, attribute I wouldn't conclude. He hasn't planned that far ahead. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that's been extrapolated or calculated. Um, Two-year runway, zero advertisement. Like, I mean, it sounds like 
it would make sense. I don't know about if his behavior is to play into that. I mean, I think Elon understands media in some sense of publicity, you know, um, all press is good press in some ways. <laughs> um, and it kind of one plays into the other in that sense. But um, I just think people are, are kind of, you know, like rooting for their favorite team, so to speak, or like their, their sideline, you know, audience members yelling at, and, and trying to have an opinion on, on something that they don't fully understand. And I think Elon's basically changing the business model of Twitter and people don't get that or don't see that yet. Um, but eventually I think something will snap and they'll, they'll, they'll see that difference when, when things are going the other way. Plus, I, I think I agree. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jason. He'll kill you if he, if he, uh, you don't let him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Hans. Uh, I think uh, I don't so agree polite. with the premise also of zero advertising because I don't think that's the model. I mean, I read, yes, I was reading yesterday and I don't know if it's true, but that, that they're offering discounts to get advertisers back. We saw the picture of of Elon at Apple Park, kind of making nice nice with uh, Tim Cook, and Apple is an advertiser besides the obviously the app, but it's dual purpose. So I think that he'd like to keep advertisers. He'd just like to keep more control over. It. Yeah, that's a topic yeah. you can un unpack a lot. That conversation between Tim Cook and and Elon, but sorry, go ahead, Hans. Well, I was going to say, I do agree that I think a lot of his tweets are much more impulsive than they are um, really thought out and well-planned, but there is part of me that I, I've been wondering if he's kind of running a semi-Donald Trump playbook where he's creating a lot of controversy and saying a lot of things that stir up a lot of media attention. Uh, because I like with Twitter user growth being what it has been, I think a lot of that is driven by all of the negative attention that he's gotten. And I, I think there's also some truth to him wanting to lead the way on like, I want Twitter to be a place where people can come and say dumb and controversial things and not necessarily have that be the end of them. Uh, and so I do think that that is definitely a factor. I would agree with that dimension of the question. I think the the interesting thing is Elon's approach lends itself to this outcome. I think that's that's what's happening here is that the somebody who appears to just want truth everywhere in everything he does is going to ruffle a lot of feathers when truth isn't the primary vector that's used by these businesses to generate profit. And so it's naturally going to create a lot of friction and craziness. Um, but as far as advertising goes, he has made it very clear that he wants to create hyper-targeted ads that become content, not necessarily like an ad experience, which to me says that it's kind of sort of echoing the, the point of the, of the rest of the panel, that it's very much part of the strategy and him giving himself runway for it to ensure that even with zero advertisers he could go like one to two years with with like literally zero income it's just a, a prudent business decision that's how i'm trying to like rationalize it in my head here that uh if something were to go really really bad they would still survive but with all the cuts he's made and the amount of efficiency he's going to take out of that business they can probably go zero advertiser revenue and blue check marks and be okay 
with probably like five years to be completely honest if they really wanted to but i don't think that's going to be the case he's going to innovate really quickly and that platform is going to become the basically the gold standard of social media in the next year or two so yeah. that's how i'm thinking about it i think he's thinking in like two or three quarters maybe to be profitable again i think he actually I said agree. that on the call um not two years plus he's got yeah. lenders and the lenders won't be happy if things aren't looking sweet because they don't want to be stuck yeah and you think about like the, as of late and we'll do one bonus question after this there's a bonus question queued up by producer wife here um Reed Hastings from uh oh my god face reveal <laughs> whoa um the what was it um Reed, Reed Hastings the Netflix CEO the the head of JP Morgan all these people came out and they have given very open props to Elon these like quote-unquote titans of industry and I feel like that's probably echoed by most if not all um people that are in a position to be able to help Tesla or Elon or Twitter in a financial uh, way or in any other way. So like Jason's point is supreme here is that regardless of what happens, the dude's going to have a backing and he's going to probably win <laughs> in the end of it because of that backing. Um, go ahead, Hans. Yeah, I think that he's definitely trying to open the Overton window. And, you know, that's one of the things that has happened on Twitter, social media in general, but Twitter specifically was you, you know, you just weren't allowed to talk about a lot of specific things. And so in order to expand that back out, it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers. It's going to be controversial. There's not a way to allow people to say things that they weren't allowed to say before without it upsetting some people. Yeah um we got we got blurry jason i like it try putting your hand in front of the camera uh to regain the focus and then uh, move it towards your face yeah all right maybe we just maybe that's what it really looks like maybe he's just blurring in real life uh <laughs> let's go ahead and pull up the uh the bonus question here did you guys guess q1 deliveries Ooh. okay um we didn't but i can throw some numbers out there so if we're assuming 450 in q4 that's what I'm assuming is 450 in Q4. That's with a probably uh, almost fully bramped Shanghai call it at 1.1 per year. And then Fremont's probably going to be maxed. But then Austin and Berlin are going to continue ramping in Q1. Um, and if the sub segment, if the subset of the 450, let's say, uh, if the weekly rate out of Berlin is 5,000, so that's five times 13 weeks in a quarter that's what 65 and austin is about the same so that's call it 130 140 let's say that grows by 30 percent of q1 so you add another 35 40 000, let's call it 40 000 additional cars in q1 then that means that q1 is probably going to be around 490 to 500 000. so that's my that's my guess for q1 what do you guys think 500 000. I like that extrapolation. I was going to say specifically, didn't like a hundred or so Chinese engineers come over to Fremont to try to revamp the factory and make it more efficient. So That's right. maybe we'll see more output in Q1 for that specific factory. Um, I'm also curious to see and track the target ramp for Berlin and Austin. Like if they're targeting half a million or a million vehicles a year, how far into that ramp we are and if that's going to continue to grow on that same pace that will help inform q1 of what those numbers would look like 
But the ultimate question, I guess, would be, do we feel like Q1 will finally beat the Q4 records? Because usually it drops back 100%. down post Q4, right? I'll beat it. I'll beat it. Yeah, I mean, the EV, the EV tax credit will be kicking in for that quarter, right? Exactly. So that I would guess that first month in particular, that should be like a crazy month. People who didn't buy in the fourth quarter were waiting. They're all probably gonna try to buy in the first first month. Yeah, pure EV manufacturers will experience no drop off in Q1, while everyone else is gonna their sales are gonna be cut in half because of the seasonality of gas cars. But that doesn't apply to EVs because EVs are eating into ICE cars. Go ahead, Hans. Oh, good. Oh, sorry. I thought you wanted to say something. My bad. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, let's call it there. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Hans. Thank you, Noah. Though, did you have something to say, Hans? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I was just trying to do the math on what I thought that they were going to be. Uh, probably somewhere between five and five ten is my guess. Just and that's real, real simple. Just taking twelve and a half percent growth over Q4, which is fifty percent divided by four. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for making it a lot easier than I did. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Hans. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jason. I uh, really appreciate you. Jason went from masked finance professional to blurry in real life. It's amazing. Your transformation uh -huh. abilities are, are great. Um, and of course, producer wife, thank you so much in the background. Give yourself a round of applause. Uh, you did a great job today. Uh, there you go. Hit the like button if you're enjoying the stream. If you want to thank producer wife. Thank you everybody in the comments for us uh, spending the last couple hours with us. Uh, had such a great time. Very eventful week. And hopefully this uh, stream made a little bit easier to digest some of what's happened. So with that, we'll see you on the next one. We'll be back on Monday. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you, Hans. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jason. We'll see you around. Bye, everybody. Mwah.